Is this thing on? <laughs> you know what? You, you are the worst. <laughs> yes. Welcome, welcome, welcome. What's up? What's up? What is up? Back once again. It is the incredible in the black podcast. And in case you weren't aware, this is a podcast dedicated to covering the current events and social issues going on in your black world and covering it all from the perspective of three grown ass men who love to get into a little bit of good trouble. I am your host, Big O, Mr. In the Black himself, but you know I can never do this alone. Let me introduce the rest of the boots. <laughs> I, I hate you so much. I hate you so much. I haven't even done anything yet, bro. I mean, let me introduce, <laughs> let me introduce the rest of the tribe called Quest. Hell, <laughs> uh, say what's up, man. I was going to say something about Fife, but, you know, Don't, God, God rest the day. God rest him. Hey, man. <laughs> What's up, trouble. everybody? How y'all doing, man? No doubt, no doubt. And yes, this is another edition of the Blacklight. Of course, you guys know the Blacklight is our opportunity to take a deep dive into the people and conversations that deserve the deep dive. But before we jump into all of that, L, please tell these good folks how they can become part of the family if they want to become part of the family. Listen, man, after hearing this particular interview, this particular Blacklight, you're going to want to become a member of the Patreon family. You're going to want to jump in and support because there's no other independent black media platform that is doing these sorts of discussions. But on our website, www.intheblackpodcast, in the right-hand corner, click the Become Family tab. There, there's a million different things that you can actually do. <laughs> you can get swag. You can become a patron. Become a patron. Become a patron. We got some dope tiers. For instance, one of the tiers is, you know, you would be one of the first people to actually hear this interview before anybody else. Uh, so you can be going around bragging to your friends like, yo, I heard Dorothy Brown before you did. Nah, 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 nah. But also, <laughs> you can <laughs> straight cash out. Uh, dollar sign in the black PDCST, but I'm going to be quiet because I want to talk to Dorothy Brown. So uh, no doubt, no doubt, yeah. no, no doubt, no doubt. Yes, and if you're checking this out on YouTube, make sure that you hit that sexy red subscribe button, hit the thumbs up button as well. It sexy? goes along. It's, it's a sexy red. Red is, red is sexy. Red is sexy. Hold on, the button is sexy though. Hey, red. Is don't get me off track okay let me finish this hit, hit the subscribe you know button hit that thumbs up it goes a long way make sure you follow us across social media at in the black pst that's facebook twitter and instagram all of that stuff now our next guest whew, our guest for this evening is a professor at emory university school of law who re whose recent book the whiteness of wealth, how the tax system impoverishes black Americans and how we can fix it has become without question the guide to how racism and taxation have created an ever increasing wealth gap between black and white America. And it's been praised for shining a light in the dark spaces of American life where many people didn't think that racism even lingered. Please help me welcome the phenomenal, the incredible Professor Dorothy A. Brown. <sighs> Professor Brown. Did you bring it um, on, I want to say thank you okay. for taking the time out to be on the show and kick it with a couple of knuckleheads like us. Thank you so much from the bottom of our heart. We really appreciate it. We do, sincerely. 
Thanks so much for having me on. I'm really excited to be here. No, no doubt, no doubt. Now we are familiar with you, very familiar with you, but please for our listeners, for our audience, if you could tell us a little bit more about yourself. So I'm Dorothy Brown. I'm a tax law professor at Emory Law School. Um, and I also teach race and I'm the author of The Whiteness of Wealth, which looks at or basically brings my research over the last 25 years to life through the stories of my parents and through the stories of some Atlantans that shows that when black and white Americans engage in the exact same behavior, tax law subsidizes how white Americans do it and disadvantage how black Americans do it. Hmm. Now, <laughs> the first question I'm going to ask you off Jump Street is you've been doing this, you've been doing this research since 1996, I believe, correct? Yes, correct. What, what puts you in that space to even say, I'm going to do something like this? That's such a good question because it really was an accident. So I went into tax law because I assumed tax law had nothing to do with race. Growing up in the South Bronx, I had I dealt with racism all the time. And I'm like, you know what? I don't want to do it at work. So I'm going to pick an area of the law that has nothing to do with race. I'm going to pick tax law. That's it, tax law. The only color is green. That's it. Okay, I'm good. Well, fast forward, I'm a law professor, and I'm reading this article by a mentor. And in the article, towards the very end, it says, how do you know there isn't a race and tax issue if you don't look? And I went, hmm, really? Race and tax? But the guy who wrote it was a mentor and he was brilliant. So I said, well, if he says it, let me let me think about it. So I immediately started thinking about it. And guess what? I found out the IRS doesn't publish statistics by race. So how am I ever going to do this work if the IRS doesn't give me the statistics? Well, I'm pretty determined. So I just became a detective. <laughs> Anything I read, I was like, well, could this have a tax implication? Could that have a tax implication? And I stumbled across this civil rights report that said married Black wives contribute 40% to household income and married white wives contribute 29%. Now, to anybody else, they're like, well, who cares? But to me, I struck gold right. because what I knew was, because when I did my parents' tax returns, Mm -hmm. I always thought something was wrong. They were paying too much, but I didn't know what. Hmm. When I read that line, it was like, that's why my parents are paying so much in taxes. The law made married Black couples where the husband and wife contributed roughly equal amounts pay higher taxes when they got married. That's what was wrong with my parents' tax returns. White married couples, on the other hand, are more likely to be in single wage earner households where one spouse works outside yeah. and one, one spouse works home. inside. When right. they get married, they get a tax cut. When black people get married, no tax cut for us. Right. So right. that was, you know, I became a detective and I went looking at area after area after area. And no matter where I looked, there was this racial disparity and hmm. black people were being disadvantaged. 25 me, years later, there's the book. Let me tell you, when I picked up your book, probably within the first, I'll say five to six pages, I literally wanted to throw it across the room. Uh, <laughs> ben, <laughs> my work here is done. <laughs> I was so incredibly angry 
uh, literally. And I, yeah. I, my wife was like, why are you so, why are you reading this book if you're so angry? I was like, well, let me read this to you. And she was like, what? What? <laughs> and she took the book and threw it across the and room. Then, and I was like, we're going to be talking to her soon. And I was like, but it, the part that made me so frustrated is conservatives, black and white, for years has used us not marrying as a reason why we haven't accumulated yes, any wealth. Is. And I'm thinking to myself yeah. after reading all your research, like, hold on. Yeah, that's right. We, Wait a minute. We, when we do get married, it doesn't help us out financially. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. I was blown away. I, I'm I'm still very, very perturbed. But the beautiful thing about the book is when you start talking about your parents, and it was very matter of fact type of conversation, like a conversation we're very much having right now. I didn't feel overwhelmed. I didn't feel yeah. like you were talking over my head. Uh, and one of the things that I really enjoyed was that you were very clear in your terms such as black and right. white. Right. Yes. There wasn't any ambiguity. I didn't see you know, people of color, multicultural. Yeah. It was just like, no, yeah. black folks. Right. I was like, yes, <laughs> finally someone is talking about us in a capacity where we are actually being viewed as, you know, a huge issue. Uh, it right. was, it's f phenomenal. Go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, thank you. I'm sure. No, you, no, I, can't help us I know. I see you. I see you. Yeah. I, I'm not going to hold it against you. Now, yeah. one of the things that I did want to ask you about your watch, your recent Washington post article. I know that you writing that article and people reading it across DC and academia and probably in, on Main Street too, read it and got butthurt because <laughs> the whole idea of going to college and, yes. it not, and it not shrinking the wealth gap between black yeah. America, maybe college isn't the answer. Right. Uh, what well, blew you away? A, let me let me take a step back. You are an a professional. Yes. You have achieved a lot. You are part of academia. You are in the elite stratosphere, as many people would probably say. And you've gone to college. You have multiple degrees. Right. How dare you say yeah. that college yeah. is well, not the audacity. way? <laughs> you have the temerity to say that college isn't the, the way. Unmitigated goal. To shrink the wealth gap. What would you say to people that might have that question for you? Well, what I say is the way we do college, the way black Americans do college is very different than the way white Americans do college. Yeah. And when we talk about debt forgiveness, what most people are talking about is the way white people do college. Okay, mm -hmm. so the impetus for me doing that Washington Post piece was to help folks who are talking about, well, what would be the benefit of debt forgiveness? help them understand it would mean the world for black Americans who went to college and you don't know that. Right. So let me explain it to you. Mm. But I will tell you this in writing this book, the college chapter. So that op-ed came out of the college chapter and it came out of the jobs chapter. Mm -hmm. Writing the college chapter made me almost stop writing the book. Wow. When I came across the statistic that said 60% of black Ooh. students who start college do not Nothing graduate, yet, yeah. I shut the laptop. I said, that's it. I'm done. I'm not finishing this damn book. I don't care. 
I left the house. I went to the beach. I stayed at the ocean. <laughs> I said, you know, if I don't go back home, I don't ever have to finish the book. So maybe I'll just stay at the beach. Three hours later, I said, okay, you have to go back home. You cannot live on the beach. But you don't have to read anything else tonight. Tonight, you're going to go home. You're going to cook a nice meal. And you're going to watch TV. And you're not going to do any of this crap. But tomorrow, you're getting back up on that damn horse. And you're going to finish the book. That's what's up. It yes, took- me out. It just took me out. Um. So yeah, I get it. It's it's like sixty percent of black students don't graduate, but they leave with debt, and because they don't graduate, they don't qualify for that higher paying job that is the promise of a college degree. You know, putting aside the racist labor market that doesn't yeah, even get yeah. a black guy from Harvard the same thing right. as white peers get. Right? Hey, Put that aside, hey. right? right, right. <laughs> you, you, it's just messed up. So this whole conversation about debt forgiveness that ignores the experiences of black Americans is what led me to that op-ed. And, and it's something I feel pretty strongly about. No, we, I, we, I do too. We, we, we are with you. <laughs> 100%, 100. Now, the question that I have now is that Given what we believe the Biden administration is moving towards, what outside of your research, outside of the statistics that you've provided, what else would you suggest to the Biden administration to try and get this across the finish line? Well, you know, the executive, it's my understanding that he has the power to forgive $50,000 of student debt. And he has said he's not going over 10000 And when he said he's not going over 10000 he basically said something really fascinating. He said, well, because, you know, you don't want to reward people who forgive debt for people who went to Harvard or Penn. And his one of his children went to Penn. And I'm thinking, because you're thinking about your white kids. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, black people that go to Harvard, they still have a hard time in the labor market. It's not the same thing. Mm-hmm. And black people who go to Harvard or Yale or Penn have higher graduation rates. There's no 60% dropout. Mm. So, you know, there's this knee-jerk reaction that elite institutions are like the wrong, we should not be helping people who go there because they're set for life. No, they're not. No, they're not. The research shows that when they take their degrees, which are more likely to come with debt than their white peers, and they take it into the labor market, labor market discriminates against them even when they go to Harvard, Yale, or Penn. Mm. So this idea that they shouldn't get debt forgiveness because they went to an elite law school misses the point of systemic racism in America. No, no doubt. My wife did attend Georgetown, and I'm not telling tales out of school, telling her business, but we know the amount of debt that we have between the both of us trying to get through. So when we initially heard this initiative to try and forgive fifty, sixty thousand dollars yeah. worth of student loan, we were like, okay, that's what's yeah. up. And yeah. then and then the tone started to slowly change. And I was like, oh okay, we're we're on that bus again. Let's 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 let's, let's strap up and get ready for this nonsense. Go ahead, L. In your book you talk about the the percentage of white people and black people who own their homes. Uh, yes. I think it was like 73, 73% of white folks own their homes and yes. less than 45 black. Absolutely. That's right. Uh, how are the tax code 
implicated in that? How does that, because it blows my mind because again, that's the number one of those things. Black folks, we rent too much. We should be trying yeah. to buy our homes. And I'm trying to wrap my mind around how taxes are involved in that area. So first, if you have tax subsidies for home ownership, which we have, you are already by design helping more white people than black people because the majority of white people own homes and the majority of black people are renters. Okay. So the minute you have tax subsidies for home ownership, okay, you're helping white people. Okay. Now let's move to yes, but Dorothy, surely once a black becomes a black American becomes a homeowner, it's the same thing. Uh, no, it ain't. That's the problem. So now we're going to talk about what happens when you sell your house. Mm. When you sell your house, you can sell it for more money than you paid. Yay. At which point you have a gain. <laughs> and the, the law says if you're married, half a million dollars of gain, you can get tax free. Mm. Okay. If you're single, $250,000. Okay. If you sell your home at a loss, no tax break for you. Jesus. Okay. Now. Well, Dorothy, someone would say, well, what's the problem? When black people sell their house for a gain, they get a tax-free gain just like black, white people. Yeah, the problem is we live in different neighborhoods. Yeah. White homeowners tend to live in all white neighborhoods with very few black Americans. Yeah. Black homeowners tend to live in racially diverse neighborhoods or all black neighborhoods. And guess what? White people don't want to live in those racially diverse or all black neighborhoods, which means the value of homes in it's all white neighborhoods is much higher. Yeah. So when black people sell their homes, they're more likely to sell for a lower gain than their white peers, but it gets worse. Black Americans who are homeowners are more likely to sell their home for a loss and there's no tax break associated with a loss. So when people talk about, well, we just need to increase the homeownership rate because this will fix the racial wealth gap. It's like, uh, no, now black homeowners have a higher net worth than black renters. Absolutely true. Sure. But the, you're not going to solve the racial wealth gap with black people buying homes because we live in different neighborhoods. Mm. The only way that would solve the racial wealth gap is if we guaranteed the white rate of return to black homeowners. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah. Okay. Other than that. And, you know, my argument is, and, you know, I learned about this as I was doing research for an article while I was selling my home in a racially diverse neighborhood. And my house wouldn't sell. And I'm like, what the, the hell? hell? <laughs> and then I'm reading this. I'm like, oh, crap. That's what it is. My house ain't selling because I, I consciously bought on a neighborhood with other black people. Well, that'll cost you, right? Damn. So I learned, and it, you know, I've never looked at homeownership the same way. So I live in Atlanta. But I don't own an Atlanta. I own a Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts. Okay? <laughs> Why? Because it's really white, white. But in the summer, it's really black. Okay? <laughs> oh, yes, my friend. Oh, yes. It is. It is the, I call it the black mecca of the north. Okay? okay? In the summer, there's a lot of black folks up there. So I feel very comfortable. But sure. I, you know, I, I learned homeownership because where I want to live is around other black people. Right. So if you do that, it means your home isn't going to be this great financial investment. But 
I also say, then don't be house poor, right? Don't put all your money in a house. Don't take out a home equity loan, whatever you do. On hold the other on, hand, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. how do okay? Go ahead. Given what you just said, you know, don't, don't start with me, okay? You don't start with me. I told my mom about you. Don't start with me, okay? So I'm looking at, I'm listening to NPR actually not even 10 minutes ago, and they're talking yeah. about the largest portion of wealth in the yes. black community is in their homes. Is in homes. Yeah. And how home ownership over the past almost 20 years in black communities or for black America has decreased. Yeah. So how can you gain wealth? If you're not going to buy one, buy a home and then put value into the home to increase its equity. So, okay. <laughs> so first, <laughs> you set a mouthful, my friend. <laughs> so first, what you want to do. So as I said before, black homeowners have more wealth than black renters. Mm -hmm. So it's not that you shouldn't be a homeowner. You should be an intentional homeowner. So if you buy in a racially diverse or all black neighborhood, mm. you don't want to take out a home equity loan because you are going to minimize potential gain that you might get on sale. And it may wind up causing you a loss. So I'm not mm. saying don't um, put money into your house. Mm. Just don't take out home equity loans like mm. you would if you lived in an all white neighborhood where the property is continuing continuing to, to appreciate exactly so this idea and and yes it's true most black wealth is in our homes which is part of why we have this racial wealth gap the system is designed mm. to screw us right the system for building wealth the only if you want to build wealth and have your home be a good financial investment, then you buy in the all-white neighborhood. But here's the problem. Oof. When you buy in the all-white neighborhood, your neighbors will call the cops on you. If you've got kids, the teachers are going to target your kids and, and you know and expel them because they're disciplinary problems because right, they're just doing right. what every other white kid does. But or when try a black to kid medicate doesn't get the out. Yep. Or try to med right? So you, you have what I call some racism triage to go through. Ooh. But it'll be a good financial investment. On the other hand, it's like, no, I want to live with my people, so I have to deal with this crap. But I recognize that means I can't buy at the top of my budget. I need mm. to save money to put in my retirement account, to maybe start a college savings account for my child, to put some in the stock market. Because what I say, and of course, this requires you to have some money, right? And mm. with extra taxes Black people are paying, it's not a whole lot of money, money that, left, that we're necessarily right. going to have. But if there is... The reason I push investing in the stock market is because mm. homeownership is raced. There's no raced stocks. There is no stock that all oh, white people don't want to buy because black people are buying it. The price of the stock market is, is what the price is. And if you're a shareholder, you have a right to get every dividend that every other member of your class right. of shareholder has. So, right. you know, it, yes, it's risky. So you don't put your last dollar in it, but you do, you should put something in it because over time, the stock market has outperformed home ownership. Mm, mm, so mm. it's something to think about, but we, mm. you know, we, have this narrative. If you buy yep. a home, you've gotten into the American dream and you're done. And I'm like, that's true if you're white. If you're black, it's not true. If you're black, we have to be more intentional. We have to be more cautious. We have to mm. think about, well, what neighborhood I'm going to buy in? If I buy in this neighborhood, how much do I want to spend? And what do I... It's, it's just a hassle and a half. And tax law 
by subsidizing home ownership implicates the federal government in this racist homeownership system. So mm-hmm. my solution is get the federal government out of it. You so know, no do- more tax subsidies for home ownership. Forget it. Period. Bye. Bye. Really? Yeah. It's racist as hell. Stop it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm looking at my I'm trying I'm trying to balance my situation and everything that you've just been saying. And it's really been a gut punch outside of just, like I said, the Washington Post article. Your book is also, dude, don't do it. <laughs> he wants to take credit. He wants to take so much credit. I, I love it. it to him. He actually, he actually did a good job for once in his life. But I'm looking at it in its totality and it's, it, you it's make depressing. You make it, it seem is. so scary. You make it seem so. I'm not going to lie to you. I talked to a couple of friends before we started the show, and I told them that we were going to have you on. And we talked about a couple of portions in the book about how marriage, in particular, how that works out in terms of economic balance for for Black America. Yeah. And once again, you got a lot of people butthurt. They were like, "Okay, God dang, Professor Brown don't want us to get married either. Like, what's going on over here?" I had a student once say that, to, "Professor Brown, what advice do you have?" And I'm like, "I'm not gonna have you go home and tell your mama I told you not to get married." Okay, so I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is, don't get married on New Year's Eve. Get married on New Year's Day. Okay, that's all I'm saying. <laughs> oh. Go ahead, L. <laughs> no, because the, the the marriage component was huge to me, but I want to talk about continue talking about the housing aspect yes. because I think that is major. In your book, you talk about uh, government approved discrimination, essentially. Yeah. Then you talk about redlining, but there's a third thing that you mentioned that you bring up that the political left uh, fails to acknowledge. You want yes. to talk a little bit about that part, right? Yeah, there. it's the 21st century racism exhibited by white Americans who don't want to live in neighborhoods with too many black people, and they have a hundred excuses. So, you know, when I think about the reception my scholarship got from white tax academics, mm-hmm. the piece of scholarship that got the most pushback was the homeownership piece. Mm. They hated it because (laughs) it implicated them for their racist behavior. Because see, these white, quote unquote, progressive law professors, they live in all white neighborhoods with no Mm. black, with no black neighbors. And they're like, well, 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 it's not race. It's it's really not race. It's it's wealth. Uh, Duh. Wealth is race but I digress. Well, it, it's not that we really don't want to live around black people. It's, it's, we don't want our property values to fall. I said, Ooh. okay, but <laughs> I'm a black homeowner. And what you're saying to me is you, your behavior is hurting the value of my home. If you're saying I'm not really racist, but I'm acting like a real racist, I don't really care. No. Okay. No. <laughs> this is not helping me. So that was the most pushback and it's the left, right? You know, I will tell you as someone who's been in, in a law professor for almost 30 years, the legal academy law professors are Ooh. not left when it comes to race. They are racist as hell. Okay. Excuse me? Racist as hell. But no, here's no, the thing. The reason why I'm they know the question is- how good they are in race. Okay? That's the thing. I had somebody on Twitter yesterday say to me that he was good on this because he read the boys. Oh. Which the really? boys? Really? It doesn't matter because you know he didn't read and understand it. Okay? Right? <laughs> He's like, no, I'm one of the good ones. I read the boys. Uh, dude. 
dude, sit, sit down. But that's the attitude. These people know how good they are on race. So when I challenge them where they live, literally, they lose their minds. It got to the point where I say to myself, okay, how many minutes before somebody loses their loses their mind and says something really stupid? Because and it usually was like five minutes into the q and I'm I'm just really just flabbergasted, not necessarily because it it, it is impossible. But you know you have this narrative in America, especially in mainstream oh, yes. media, that oh, the, academia especially is just far, far to the left. Like uh, we gotta no. stop the, the we gotta stop right. our kids from going to these radicalizing institutions all because they're they're gonna go there and you're gonna see them burning their bras in the street and all that other nonsense right. again. And so, whatever they're left on, it ain't race. That's why they're so white. Right? They're very white. Their faculties are very white, their student bodies have very few black students. It's like they're, they're, that's the myth. That's why the left doesn't look at themselves as to how they could be part of the problem because mm. they know their hearts and they know, <laughs> wait, my favorite, my favorite, I don't see color. Yeah, Jesus Christ. At which point I go, when was the last time you went to the eye doctor? Because there's something <laughs> wrong with you, okay? Yeah. Do you expect to get a lot of pushback from the Biden administration? Because I know that I've been as as we were preparing for the show, I've seen some articles and heard a lot of voices and folks are like, this Dr. Brown, she's a handful. Boy, I don't know what we're going to have. <laughs> I don't know what we're going to do with her. Do you expect to be involved in the process of moving this racial wealth gap or closing this racial wealth gap? You know, unfortunately, the Biden administration has put into the Treasury Department, which deals with tax laws, white academics who don't know anything about systemic racism and tax. Mm. But like we said before, just now, but they're left and they think they're progressive. In mm. fact, the argument I got into on Twitter yesterday was precisely this point. It was about the Biden administration, personnel and Treasury ignoring race when they could have done better. Mm -hmm. And one of my colleagues, um, Stephen Dean at Brooklyn Law School, tweeted about it. And this white guy at UC Irvine basically says, I don't think it's anti-black. And I jump in and say, excuse me, do you <laughs> think you're the expert on what anti-black is? And he basically said, yeah, he was because he read the boys and other stuff. I'm like, I can't even with you, right? I can't even with you. So I think that the left, the white left tax professors in treasury are dug in. They know their hearts. They know they're good. The fact that they have zero track record on race and tax is really irrelevant. So I will tell you, I've had more of a positive reception out of Congress. I really? testified before the Senate Finance Committee last month and next month, next week, I'm testifying before the Joint Economic Committee. I've had conversations with staff. Hmm. Congress seems interested in doing something and the Biden administration and Treasury they no, seem interested in talking, not doing. And my theory is I'm a tenureful professor, so I can talk too. <laughs> and what I'm going to talk about is how y'all ain't doing nothing other than talking. But so so what do you think? Because in your book, you speak about reparations. Yes. It's an, reparations are incredibly trendy now. Uh, everybody and their mama is talking about it. Most don't have a historical analysis of it, a proper historical analysis of it. Uh, yeah. But you mentioned 
reparations in a taxing type of way. Can yes. you share a little bit more about that, please? Yes. So I wrote the book and in the book, in each chapter, the five chapters, I show how black Americans pay higher taxes than white Americans. So even if we change the tax code tomorrow, we still need to compensate black Americans for paying higher taxes for the last few decades. So my response was to come up with a recommend a reparations tax credit, which would be a tax credit for every black person, every black taxpayer, because we paid higher taxes. Now, I'm also a law professor, so I know the Supreme mm. Court's not going to find that constitutional. Mm. So I say my next best alternative is a wealth tax credit, which would apply to every taxpayer in a household with below median wealth, which mm. is going to disproportionately benefit Black Americans because mm. of the racial wealth gap. Mm. So it's the, it's the second best alternative, but it would also benefit white Americans and Latinx Americans and Asian Americans and indigenous, everybody in below median wealth. So, but, but there ought to be compensation for black Americans who paid higher taxes. That's a, because the government mandated them, right. right? That's like why we should have reparations. So that's where it comes up in the book in the form of a recommend uh, reparations tax credit. I know that you've already discussed or gave us some insight to the difficulties in writing the book, especially writing a portion about <laughs> getting college. a college degree. You're like, I'm starting to reconsider. Even my wife and I have what a 529, and I'm like, I don't know if I. Anyway, yes, so, 529, good. Really? Okay. Keep putting in the 529. Okay. Good. Thank you. Yeah, I'm because my wife you know the goal is. To get your kids out of college without debt or with as little debt as possible. That's the goal. That's so the that goal. they can start more fresh, right? That's the, that's, that's the goal. And that's what 529s will help you do. So my question to you is what has been the probably the most difficult part of, of assembling this book? Yeah. Like, the most, okay, the most difficult part was <laughs> the day I found out the IRS didn't publish statistics by race. Okay, once I'm wow. like, damn, I have to do this myself. Then it was getting an agent, right? Huh. That, look, I'm writing about tax. Yeah. yeah, yeah. For a general audience? Yeah. Do you yeah, know yeah. how many rejections I got? Look, I could wallpaper my apartment with the rejections I got from agents. I was really wow. lucky, really lucky. I have like the world's best agent. And she was my, this is a great story. She was my first choice, Aliyah Hannah Habib. She was my first choice because I said to myself, publishing industry is white. I'm oh, writing yeah, a, right. a direct, Woo. I'm writing a book that is direct on race. And that's a polite way to put it, right? It's direct. Mm. Mm. So I said, I need an agent who can handle working with someone who is very direct on race. Who is writing a book that has an agent who is direct on race? Nicole Hannah-Jones. So I said, who is Nicole Hannah-Jones's agent? Aaliyah Hannah-Habib. So I decided, I decided I wanted her to be my agent. So I sent her an email and she said, let me see your proposal. And I said the proposal, I'm all excited. She goes, nah, I don't think it's gonna fit. But she was so very polite. <laughs> And she rejected me. And I was like, God damn. So this was like April. I spent the entire summer sending out emails. Would you be my agent? And getting rejections. Fast forward to August. 
I'm sitting on my couch and I'm literally in tears. I'm like, I, am I not going to have this book? Am I not going to? Because to me, the key was for a general audience. It wasn't right, for yeah. academics. Right. I want no. people like you to read it. It wasn't yeah. for academics. I'm like, well, am I wrong? Is the book not good? I mean, I know I need help. I just need somebody to help. And one of my friends said, Dorothy, it's going to it's gonna come. You just need to have pages. <laughs> so I was at the point where I felt if I got one more piece of rejection, I'd probably stop. So I said, wow. I'm not going to send out any more emails because I can't handle any more rejection right now. I'm just going to keep working on chapters on the book. Yeah. So fast forward September, I come out of class and I get an email from Aaliyah. And she hmm. says, Dorothy, I can't stop thinking about your book. I've never done this before, but I think wow. I have an idea for us to move forward. You'd be interested in a conversation. Wow. Well, after I fell out my chair and got back <laughs> up on it, I'm like, yeah. And we talked and the rest is history. So oh, no. she signed me up and we started working on the proposal. And yeah, she ripped it to shreds because it needed work. I knew this, but she's wonderful. And one day she's out walking a dog. So this is the fall of 2017. She's walking a dog and she gets the idea because everybody's talking about the Trump tax cuts. Yes, they were. Indeed. She said, we have to get your proposal in front of their desk the first week of December. And we both worked like mad people and got it in. And I got the book deal with Crown and I got the wow, world's wow, best wow. editor with Emma Berry wow, wow, and wow, it wow. all worked. But I'm the hardest part, I'd say, was getting that agent because without the agent, you can't get publishers won't talk to you. Wow. And wow. and I I realized how many really good books never make it to print because they can't find the connection with the agent. It was it was a humbling experience to put it politely. Mm. Mm. And I'm gonna tell you, I'm so glad this wasn't an academic book. I tell Me you, too. I didn't want to write that. Not only that, <laughs> academic books is expensive as hell. Like, listen, and it sells three copies. My yes. mother, like, my nephew, and somebody dollars? else would have put it exactly. <laughs> what the hell? So the, you mentioned the Trump tax cut. I know a yeah. lot of my black friends, hi o, were very excited about that tax cut. They were like, oh my God, this is going to be so beneficial. This is going to help us all out. Hold Maybe on, Trump on, is on. not no, that stop, bad. Stop, stop. Let me make sure that I clear this up, okay? <laughs> this That tax cut hurt me very badly. Very much. Very badly. So yeah. go ahead, Elle, and continue your shenanigans, okay? So would you tell Sh Sean why that tax cut hurt him so bad, please? Well, you know, not knowing his personal tax situation, I will say this. Trump tax cuts were designed to help like the richest 1% of Americans. Okay. Hey, that's not Sean. No, go ahead. So I'm just saying, I don't know, right? I'm oh, not I'm in the business. Not, I tell you, it's not Sean. I mean, don't his wife went it. to Georgetown, so it could be. I don't know. Oh, I went to Georgetown. Oh, come on, come on. Come <laughs> on. Oh, no. Okay. So, my, I know that your academic life has to have changed since writing this book your colleagues got to give you a little bit got to give you a little bit of the juice when you walk by because you you've well, gotten forwards from eddie glaude and ibrahim kendi and all these other folks they have to be looking at you with the side eye now after you've written this book right the good no. news is we're in a pandemic i ain't seen my colleagues since <laughs> i don't know when okay praise so the god. good news is thank praise god is praise right god. okay so I, they may be giving somebody, they may be giving my picture side eye, but I ain't seen it, okay? <laughs> 
I will say this. Academics tend to be very insecure and petty people. So you can fill in the blanks, right? So, wow. you know, the good news is uh, we're in a pandemic. <laughs> mm. When you're trying to impart this type of information on your students, because I'm yeah. assuming that it, a little bit of Miss Brown has to come yes. out when you're teaching your students, right? Yes. How do, how do they receive it? You know, most of them receive it well. Um, every now and then I'll get a student, she's pushing an agenda. She's trying to, you know, and I'm like, whatever, wow. it's fine. Right. Wow. But most students say, I never thought about this. Tell me more. In wow. fact, one of my students from last semester set up a zoom call with me after class was over to talk about race and tax. Cause he was so intrigued. So wow. I, you know, I find the students are quite open to hearing about it um, as a general proposition. And they don't, and I talk about it the first day. So the hmm. first day of tax, and one of my learning objectives for the course is to understand how systemic racism plays a role in tax implications, right? So that's what, so you know from, if you read my syllabus, right? Not mm -hmm. all the students do, but if you read my syllabus, you know it's there. And I say it on the first day, I give a little mini lecture of how race can come into tax law when it's supposedly race neutral. Why do I do it that way? So you could drop the course if you don't want to hear it. Because right. I'm telling you on day one, we're yeah. going to talk about it. I'm the professor. Good luck. If you don't want to hear it, take drop. Drop the course. But if you stay in, I'm sorry, we're going to do this. Right? <laughs> and it's always interesting. Students are very into it. Students are very into it. Because wow. it's, it's so intriguing. I mean, yes. it's an area that we've never actually given any thought to. Yes. When I hear you say that blacks are paying more in taxes than white people, I'm blown the hell away knowing that black folks are poor. Like, Yes. Thank you. We need myth, the money. This right. whole mythology <laughs> that we have this 1.4 million billion dollars in buying power foolishness. Black folks are broke. But we're paying more in taxes? How is we that are. possible? We right. are. And when you control for income, we are saving at higher rates than our white peers. Excuse so me? Yes. This the, It's just nonsense that everybody's out buying gold chains and sneakers. Okay? Uh, That's just nonsense. Wow. The research shows black people save at higher rates than our, our white peers. Period. Full stop. We know if we're not frugal, we're going to wind up on the streets. Come on, right? Yeah, this, yeah. I mean, yes, I have the research, but you know, I grew up in James and Dorothy Brown's house, so I learned this at an early age. Yeah. You, you know, we we are savers, in spite of the fact that we pay higher taxes. In fact, when I, so my father passed away, my mother's still alive. She is eighty nine, feisty as hell. She's she hasn't yeah. changed. She hasn't changed a lick. And when I look at her sometimes, I go, it's not my fault. I had to be like this because of Miss Dottie. It's not my fault. Right. So she was my little fact checker. Every draft chapter I'd send her so she could point out if there was anything I got wrong. When she read the marriage chapter, she was so upset. She goes, Dale, me and James reparations. Wow. I have never heard my mama use the R word in her life. Wow. That's how mad she was. She, Cause she knows how hard it was to make ends meet. Hmm. And here she's learning. She's paying higher taxes. Cause she and my father got married. Oh yeah. No, you, you can't do nothing with Miss Dottie. Now she's, she's, she's ticked. She's ticked. <laughs> okay. She's ticked. So, so we're tax laws. We're tax laws. 
were they intentionally racist or were they intentionally white? See, oh, that's such a good, you know, I think they were, I think they were intentionally white because when you look at the times that these provisions came into law, so the joint return that allowed, that started us on this married people pay higher taxes if you're black, came into being in 1948. The 1948, we didn't have Brown v. Board of Ed. We had no civil rights. Brown v. Mm. 1948, Jim Crow was legal. Yeah. Okay. The tax break for home ownership sales came in in 1951. And 1951 still had Brown wow. v. Board of Ed. The wow. tax break for capital gains, income from stock, getting taxed yeah. at a lower yeah. rate, 1921. Oh, okay. Who had income from stock in right. 1921? It wasn't my ancestors. Right, okay? right, right. So they wow. were intentionally white at a time when discriminating against black Americans was just fine. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> See, this is why I wanted to write a popular press book. This is what, because every time, it's funny, I would give a talk to a tax audience, well, to tax law professors, and I'll never forget, I I just finished giving this presentation about um, my marriage penalty stuff, and the first comment was from a liberal, white, progressive professor at UT Austin, and he says, Dorothy, everybody knows your work is irrelevant because Blacks are poor and don't pay a lot in taxes. That's the first comment, Okay. So I'm sitting there, yeah, okay, this one's going to cost you, buddy, okay? So when it was my turn to respond, I said, well, if you're right, what we want is our children to grow up to be poor so they don't pay a lot in taxes. Okay, the room bursts out laughing. I said, no, we want like Warren Buffett income that's not subject to the alternative minimum tax. And, you know, that's what we want. Don't, you know, what do you mean? And let's think about this. Your work is irrelevant because blacks are poor and don't pay a lot in taxes. Okay. The percentage of blacks in poverty, about 22%. Yeah. I don't need a calculator to know that means more than three-fourths of black people ain't in poverty. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying. So this tax law professor who can't do math, right? <laughs> Talking about race and tax makes literally progressive, in my experience, progressive white tax professors lose their minds. So when I would give this talk to a general audience, they ate it up. Give me more. Give me more. I want to hear more. Somebody once said, I want you running for office. I'm like, take it back or I'm going to hit you, right? <laughs> so it was such a different reception when I talked to regular people. So I was determined that they needed this information. I mean, this is a book I wrote for Black people, right? Mm, White people are really. reading it too. You but it's for are. Black people, yeah. for you to know you're not doing anything wrong. The system is out to get you. It's not paranoia. You're not doing anything wrong, okay? And I want you to understand, in America, the system for building wealth is for white people. And even if you want to act like white people, you still can't get all the benefits because you can't act your way out of blackness. You can live in that all-white neighborhood, but the cops are going to stop you. You can't can't get out of it. You can't get away from it. 
Listen, when I was when I, as I'm reading, I'm taking notes on my note card, and some of the stats that I wrote down between 1983 and 2016, black families saw our wealth decrease by 83 was it million or 83 dollars annually? I off the top of my head, I cannot I, remember. That but we specific. know it's decreased. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yes. Why the hell has it decreased? Because we we working just as hard. I mean, yes. even actually even harder. Looking even at the harder. Statistics, even harder. Yeah. Well, part of it is a lot of our wealth is tied up in our homes, and as we started that conversation, home values have decreased. So when we think about the the Great Recession, two thousand eight and following, yeah. white Americans came out of that faster than Black Americans because they had more income in the stock market, whereas Black Americans had to wait for their home prices to rebound, and in then. some instances, they never did. Never did, yeah. A lot of neighbors. I feel like I need to get a divorce and go move in a one bedroom <laughs> that, apartment. You know what? When you I know. when I go up and tell my wife, I'm like, "Hey, you no, know, let's be clear. Don't you be saying Dorothy Brown told you that." <laughs> like, hey, listen, man, don't to, uh, uh, let me be yeah. clear, okay? Don't even don't even go there. <laughs> but where's I'm the looking, hope at? I mean, I think, honestly, it, it's sincere. I mean, that's, that's I think that's the perfect. Well, I won't say that. What I'll say is that, at least from looking at some of the numbers, right? Yeah. It seems as though the pandemic was if there was a good thing to come out of the pandemic is that it introduced a lot of the black community into retail to stock in the stock market. That number has increased tremendously. However, sure. we're still at a loss because we don't know how to manage the money as well as folks that have been taught that or have been doing that for umpteen donkey years. So, so one of my Atlanta couples, um, Kristen and Greg Galloway and mm -hmm. Greg says, how can we ever get ahead? So I interviewed yep. them and then I told them how their taxes, the impact of marriage on their taxes. And he goes, how can we ever get ahead? And the answer is you can't until we fix this. And part mm. of my job with the book is getting people angry enough to demand change. We can get this fixed if black people start talking about getting screwed on their taxes. Hmm. So yes, voting rights is a problem, but so is paying higher taxes. You damn right. Right? And we need to focus on that as well. And it's ju it's just important, you know, one of the other things I'll say that some days I get optimistic when I have people on Twitter, when I have white guys on Twitter telling me they know better because they read the boys, I'm not so <laughs> optimistic, okay? But other than that, um what the murder of George Floyd did in the middle of a pandemic was wake up many white Americans to systemic racism. I got more calls from white reporters wanting to talk about systemic racism in corporate America, systemic racism in tax this summer than I have all combined in the 20-something years I've been doing, doing this. Wow. So, so that gives me cautious optimism that there is an appetite to have the conversation and the more we talk about it the more we will have change that's what i think so my book is basically you know you said it you got mad and wanted to throw it across the room if somebody said to me what do you want people to take away from your book i would have said i want them to get mad and throw the book across the room yeah. 
That's what I want because this is this is conversation. Infuriating. It is infuriating. And what we hear from the right is all black people don't pay taxes and they're just taking all these services. Okay, here's a funny story. So I'm testifying before the Senate Finance Committee, and one of the Republican senators said. Well, we're going to talk about race and taxes, that we need to talk about race and the spending side and Medicaid and blah, 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 blah. And don't you think black people, blah, blah, blah. So I said, Mm. you know, I I said, I'm not quite sure I understand the question. And then he said it again. And then I I said, oh, you mean like when white people who don't pay a lot in taxes use the judicial system? Is that what you mean? (laughs) That's not being responsive. And he moved on. (laughs) Okay. Professor Brown, you seem just talking to you. You seem like you're ready for all of the smoke. All the smoke. Like, are you? I kind of am. Are you good? I'm I'm happy and I'm loving it, but I'm worried for you. I'm worried (laughs) for you because you're talking to white people about race and specifically white people around money. And it's thank you. And it's connection to money. Are you at least worried, scared that you might get blackballed or I? I don't know. Just it seems like I got tenure. very lightly. You know what I, I mean? She tenured, like. I got tenure. What you gonna do? Not a doggone thing. And see, here's the thing. And there are people who are confused. I've had white folks write like the president of the university, and I just burst out laughing. What do you think he's gonna do? He ain't doing nothing. He can't do nothing. I'm tenured. This is my job. This is my scholarship. If academic freedom means anything, it means I get to write this book and I get to talk about it. And there ain't nothing you could do about it. So, you know, most white Americans, or at least the ones that I get the nasty emails from, they don't have never been in a position where a black person could like ignore them. Oh, don't do that. Oh, and I have so much fun doing delete. All right, Professor Brown, we're going to get you out on this. We usually ask people of your ilk this question. Given what you do, the research, the time, the sweat, the love that you've put into this project, how do you feel that weight, that pressure on your back to be able to put out such something that's because a lot of people are looking to this book and it's it's been extremely revolutionary. Yeah. So do you feel that pressure, like the communal pressure? You know how we, us as black people, we put that weight on each other to to be our best and to make sure that we're doing everything right. Do you feel that pressure? You know, I wanted this book to be well done. And I was lucky that I had an editor who was a partner with me in making it well done. And once, you know, I read this book from beginning to end several times. And every time I read it, I came away thinking, I'm proud of this book. Mm. I like this book. So at the end of the day, I don't feel, you know, I don't feel any particular pressure because I've left it all on the field. Hmm. Um, and I also, you know, you can ask my mother this, I, you know, guilt doesn't work on me. So whatever, <laughs> no, I, I'm very, you know, I'm very comfortable in my own skin. And I think that really helps. Um, so I'm not that concerned if somebody says, well, I don't like it or what about, like, okay, then I, I support your right not to like it. I, I don't mm. take it personally. You're the one getting defensive, not me. And I've had amazing, I've had amazing conversations. I've had amazing um, emails. You know, I, I spoke at a 
at a, a school to some high school students who asked me to come talk. That was so mm. much fun, right? That's so cool. I have I have opportunities that I didn't have before, and I'm very grateful for that. But I also know that people expect me to tell the mm-hmm. truth, yep. to speak truth to power. That's yep. what tenure allows me to do. So I could be testifying before Congress and said, oh, you mean like when white people don't pay their taxes, but use the judicial system? Because <laughs> I don't, you know, I don't want a job on the Hill. There's nothing you could do to me. Yeah. I, I, you know, I don't ever need another job. There's nothing you, but I will say this in the fall, I'm visiting in my alma mater, Georgetown Law. So that should be fun. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm very content with where I am and look forward to, you know, this was a great invitation. This was a great conversation. We never would have talked, but for this book, right? So how much fun is that? You know, I I look at it that way. I know this book is making its rounds in uh, circles that typically academic books don't make their rounds in. I live in, I live in a predominantly black, low socioeconomic environment. And we're having discussions in our, you know, community organizing meetings about this yeah. book and how yes. can we institute certain components on a local community level. Right. This wouldn't be a conversation that we would have if this was one of them 65, 75 dollar damn books that had a thousand pages. And we big have been doing and, and twenty-five dollar words that yeah. don't make any sense. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Because yes. it's yeah. easy and palatable and relatable. The yes. family component, when you talk about your parents in the book, yes. I'm having conversations with elderly people and they're like, oh my God, yes, me. my husband James, <laughs> you know, had yes. a heart attack because he worked so hard and we never, you know, it's it's just a great tool that we're able to use. Thank I'm you glad for to that. hear that. Oh, you're it's welcome. Awesome. I'm really glad to hear that. No, 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 no. That's what I wanted. Yes, indeed. Professor Brown, thank you so much for taking the time out to be on this show. We I can't my pleasure. I enjoyed this more than you you understand. (laughs) (laughs) But before we let you you go, please do you have any events coming up? And please tell tell our listeners, our audience, where they can find you if they'd like to find you and tell you that they read the boys and they know better than you. Okay. (laughs) No, we don't have those listeners. We don't have those. I know you don't. I know you don't. Okay. (laughs) I know you don't. So next Wednesday, I'm going to be on The View. What? (laughs) We got you before The View? That's what I'm talking about. You know what? Let me me, me call my mama real quick. Let me call my mama real quick. Tell her we done made it. Okay? Okay? That is my mother's, like, favorite show. When I told her I was going to be on The View, she goes, okay, okay. Now, what day? She walked over to her calendar that's on the refrigerator and wrote wrote it in. It was just too cute. It was just too cute. So you hold up. You you ready for Megan McCain? Because you know she's going to give you some. Give her the She's going to give you that blue blue. That's not the question. The question is, is make it ready, ready for, for me. me. Okay, you know what? My bad. Let me you. My bad. You right. You right. My bad. My bad. Oh, so How can our audience and our listeners get a hold of you on social media? So my Twitter account is at Dorothy A. Brown. And my website is DorothyABrown.com. Somewhere there's an Instagram, but I don't do anything on it. So you want to find me on Twitter at, at Dorothy A. Brown. No doubt. And they can, can they buy your book from your website as well? 
Not from my website, but I can give a link. I think my website gives a link to the publisher's website. It and they can get it from there. It. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. All right. Yes. Good to go. And we'll make sure to have that in our uh, description, our show descriptions when we uh, when we put this Great. up as well. Fantastic. Great. Professor Dorothy A. Brown, thank you so much for taking the time out. We really, really appreciate it. Really appreciate Don't, this please do not be, so much. When you write your next book, please do not be a uh, a stranger. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I won't. I won't. <laughs> I've already started thinking about my next book. So yes. Okay. Uh oh, good. I can't oh, wait. Oh, <laughs> All right. Thank you. Bye. <laughs> thank you. Bye. Bye. L, <laughs> that was a fantastic conversation, man. What were your takeaways? She's amazing. Uh, everyone who is black across the diaspora, but specifically in America, should read this book because it is maddening how the codes have been set up. Yeah. It is encouraging because of the knowledge and information and the solutions that she provides. Yeah. I highly recommend this text, man. I, yeah. it, it's phenomenal. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. I'm I'm not going to lie to you. My takeaways were I'm going to tell my wife that we need to get a divorce for tax purposes. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just joking. I'm just joking. <laughs> no, but honestly, her, the insight that she's put into it and the fact, like you said, that it was it was regular speak. It made sense, and you don't get too many books from academia you know that stuff really starts, starts to go starts going over your head so the fact that it was very palatable and it made sense very very clear it was that was the best part about it man Dope Hell, conversation yes indeed man where can our folks find you if they want to find you sir twitter man at elgin bailey twitter no doubt the twitters <laughs> and i'm big old mr in the black himself you can find me on twitter and instagram at mr underscore in the black and i want to thank you guys once again for joining us for another incredible episode of the in the black podcast you could have been anywhere else in the world but you chose to kick it with us and we appreciate it make sure you follow us across social media at in the black pdcst on facebook twitter and instagram make sure you join our patreon to join man, the family man. join it man yes indeed yes indeed but as normal as always until next time informed intelligent in the, in black. the black peace
yeah. In the black podcast, they your lad, it's all facts. You don't like that, then fall back. In the black podcast, they punt up. Who knows if you watch black up in your chat, Mickey on flop. In the black podcast, they your lad, it's all facts. You don't like that, then fall back. In the black podcast, we outlast. The whole of them can, none of them no can trust. Yeah. Like that though. Yeah, man, that's how we are doing it, no big old. Yeah. Mr. In the Black himself. Uh, what up, DJ Henry? It's your boy Black P. I'm out. No.